Judgment begins where? That's right. Judgment begins here. You know, as we were praying, as we see, we all feel it. We, I mean, I think it is, we all feel, I think, what Frankie was describing, this tension, something. God is moving, right? Aslan is on the move, as some people say. You know, Aslan, the lion from the Chronicles of Narnia series who represents Christ. There is something happening. There is something happening. And Judgment begins here. Judgment begins here. And so um, as we pray uh, to begin this message, which is on confession of sin, as we move through our liturgy, I want to just tell you, this message came to me hard. It, was un- it is uncomfortable to me. And I want us to let our defenses down. And hear God's word to us that calls us to be honest about ourselves and our sin. And so know that, number one, I am talking to you. I'm not talking to imaginary people. I'm talking to you. God's talking to me. Don't be offended or defensive. Let us hear the word of God. Leave off whatever does not apply. Of course. Leave off whatever is untrue. Of course. But hear the Lord speak to us this morning. Okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, even as I have searched out your word this week, and it has searched me and cut me, even as it does now. I pray that your sharp and your powerful word would have a similar effect on all who hear your word today. That we would all be changed and transformed. And I pray that as you use me to deliver this message, we would all, we would all receive your divine word to us this morning. Prepare us to hear and to be changed. That we would not go away and forget, but that we would go away doing your will and obeying your commands. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. So our study on worship, uh, on worship in spirit and in truth continues, and we are coming now to uh, the confession. We started to look at our Lord's Day service. Um, these parts of our service, we began last week with the call, and now we come to the confession. We call this service, a covenant renewal service or covenant renewal worship. Because as we gather here around the word of God, around the table of the Lord, God is renewing covenant with us. God is being reminded and he is reminding us of his covenant with us, of his forgiveness of sin, of the price that his son paid. So we are reminding him of his promises and he is remembering and he is serving us grace upon grace. His mercy is new every morning and each week he is showing us that sweet mercy by calling us, cleansing us, consecrating us, communing with us at his table and commissioning us to go back out into the field and what he is doing for us here in this service in our weekly Lord's Day gathering 
shapes us and it shapes that work out in the field. And the first gifts the first gift that he gives us here when he calls us is to cleanse us. He cleanses us. God calls us and when we come into his majestic presence and we fall down and we declare with Isaiah and Isaiah 6:5, Isaiah comes in to the glory and the majesty of God and he experiences this majesty and he falls down and he says, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's what Isaiah says. In the presence of God's majesty and holiness we are given a visceral awareness of our uncleanness and, sin, and sins. In other words, it's, we're not just acknowledging it mentally. Yes, God is holy. Yep, there is majesty there. We, we feel it. We feel it here. We know it, yes, but we feel it. When we truly experience his majesty and his holiness coming into this pure and this spotless environment, the more we recognize God's glory and holiness, what else do we recognize more and more? Our sin. The more conscious we are of our impurity and the sin. And this is the case for us individually as well as corporately. Notice what Isaiah said. He says, woe is me, for I I am a man of unclean lips. And what does he say next? And I live among a people of unclean lips. This is true for us individually and corporately. I don't have one particular text that we'll be expositing this morning. Um, I'm going to read you two texts, though, as we begin. Proverbs 28, 13. Kids, you can help me out. He who covereth his sin... That's right, shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whosoever confesses and forsaketh them shall have mercy. And 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So remember, worship in spirit and in truth is worship in an atmosphere created by the Holy Spirit. That's what James Jordan says. And that means that the atmosphere created by the Holy Spirit that we worship in is holy. It is holy. Everything the Holy Spirit does is what? Holy. God's cleansing corresponds to the offering for our purification. And in Leviticus chapter 4, you can read about that. And so when we are called and we gather, God mercifully cleanses us so we can be in the same area as God, so to speak. When we come to the glorious throne of grace, where the holy, holy, holy God sits, and we can, we can be there because he has cleansed us. We cannot be there for any other reason. We can only be there because he cleanses us. The blood from the purification offering was to purify the area of the tabernacle that the worshiper defiled. Our sin is incompatible with God. And so when we come into his presence on the Lord's day, 
He must cleanse us. We confess and he assures us of our pardon according to the finished work of Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb of God, whose blood was shed for us. If we think about those sacrifices in that purification offering, it didn't stop at the killing of the animal. The worshiper had to bring the animal, whether that was the high priest or whether that was an elder, whether that was a ruler, or whether that was just a regular old Israelite. They had to bring that animal and kill the animal. But that wasn't the end. The, the blood from that animal had to be applied to those things that were being purified. And so the priest, when they were anointed, they had blood put on their bodies, on their tip of their right ear, on their right thumb, and on their great toe of their right foot. They were being purified. They were being consecrated, set apart. At the cross, Jesus' blood came out from his pierced side and fell at the base of that altar after that he was being lifted up on. In Revelation 1, 5, and 6, we see that Jesus washed us from our sin in his own blood, and he made us kings and priests to his God and Father. We are consecrated, and we are set apart as he cleanses us. You are cleansed and set apart. In Hebrews 9, 14, God tells us that the blood of Jesus cleanses our conscience from dead works to serve him. The living God. Our conscience is consecrated for God's work. God's work to keep you on righteous path. That blood of the sacrifice of Jesus is applied to us. To our body that is the temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. What amazing grace. God is inflexibly holy and righteous and just and true. And so he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to satisfy his wrath, his justice for the sin of his people. And now in Jesus, we partake of his life, of his righteousness, his holiness. And we, are, we ourselves become a purified dwelling place for God. That blood is applied to you. And you become a set-apart, consecrated, purified dwelling place of the holy, holy, holy God. And this is where we see the mystery. This is where we see the mystery because you are saints who have been washed clean in the blood of Jesus. And yet you are struggling sinners, redeemed. Here we are, here we sit this morning in these sin-plagued, broken bodies. These jars of clay, Paul says. Jars of clay that are ever full of the waters of his grace. We are wasting away, the Bible says. Being worn down. But you know what else the Bible says? It says we are being renewed day by day. Slowly, 
sanctified and conformed to the image of Jesus. Maybe you're thinking too slowly. Paul, the redeemed blaspheming persecutor, at the end of his life, confessed himself the chief of sinners. At the end of his life, confessed himself the chief of sinners. John Newton, the man who wrote the iconic hymn, Amazing Grace, at the end of his life said, although my memory's fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great savior. Here is a mystery. The more sanctified we become, that is the more holy and pure we become by the grace of God, the more sinful we see ourselves. When you hear the man talking about perfection, about his sinlessness, run away. The more holy we become, the more sinful we see ourselves. As we progress in our Christian race, generally speaking, we will in one sense struggle with smaller, smaller, and fewer sins. But the catch is that as we see God's holiness more clearly and our mind is being renewed to the mind of Christ... God's greatness becomes so overwhelming that even the smallest sins become become glaringly intrusive and disruptive against the backdrop of holiness. Even those small little sins that aren't hurting anybody else as you are becoming more and more aware of His holiness become so intrusive and disruptive. It doesn't mean, this does not mean that Christ's atonement needs to be repeated over and over and over to pay for our sins we commit over and over and over. Just you or is it me? Just me? Just you? Is it just me? Over and over and over? No. Over and over and over. We tell our kids, haven't I told you this a million times? We should think to ourselves, hasn't God told me this a million times? I'm tired of telling you this. We should think, ah, thank God he is not tired of telling me over and over and over and forgiving me over and over and over. No, we do not repeat Christ's atonement over and over and over to pay for our sins over and over and over. The scriptures are clear that the atonement of Jesus is once for all. Once for all. We are not sacrificing Jesus every time we sin and confess and receive forgiveness. We are not sacrificing Jesus every time we sin and confess and receive forgiveness. We are not sacrificing Jesus each week when we come to his table and eat his body and drink his blood. What is happening? What is happening when we come to his table? When we confess, when we repent and we confess and we receive assurance of pardon? What is happening? 
What is happening is that as often as we sin and confess and we receive forgiveness, the effect of Christ's perfect, finished atonement is being applied to us in real time over and over and over again. Let me say that again. What is happening when we repent and we confess is that as often as we sin and confess and receive forgiveness, the effect of Christ's perfect and finished atonement is being applied to us in real time again and again and again. Praise be to God. That is the gospel that you never outgrow. You don't graduate from the gospel. You don't graduate from the good news. You don't ever stop needing Jesus to be your advocate because now you're a Christian. Now you have the Holy Spirit. Yes. That's why we keep needing the good news because we are a dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And yet here we are sinning. Here we are, weak in our flesh. That is the good news that that we don't ever outgrow, that never gets old, that Christ saves sinners. And you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. It may be easy for us to think of the importance and the necessity of corporate confession and purification in the Old Covenant. And maybe you don't see the need or importance in the new covenant where Jesus Christ, upon the cross, uttered, it is finished. But confession, confession is the difference between a proper and improper response when meeting with God. Confession is the difference between a proper and an improper response response when meeting with God. In the garden, Adam and Eve fall and they confess their shame and their hiding. But when pressed on their sinful actions that caused that shame, what did Adam and Eve do? They deflected. They sought to justify themselves. Adam says, the woman. And the woman says, the serpent. That is anti-confession. That's anti-confession. But we also see great examples of how men respond appropriately in the presence of the majesty of God. We already saw Isaiah fall down and cry, Woe is me! Until he was lifted up. John in Revelation falls down, though dead, until he was comforted and told, Do not be afraid. He was lifted up. Or by illustration, I love this illustration, in the parable of the lost son, as he comes back from his filth, the son says in his, in his pigsty, he says, I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to confess my sin. And I'm going to tell him, I'm not even worthy to be your son anymore. Make me a servant, but that will still be better than where I'm at now. And he goes back to his father. And what does he do? He confesses his sin. And what does his father do? He lifts him up. 
He puts robes on him like Jesus does for you. Robes of righteousness. Confession to the Most High is accompanied with contrition. Contrition. Brokenness. True confession is accompanied with some recognition of the weight of sin. Peter, after he denied Jesus, three times wept bitterly. Must we confess? Yes. And yet, must we confess? Yes. Confession is not optional for a Christian. And yet... Our confession does not merit us anything. Nothing. We do not merit God's forgiveness by our act of confessing. We do not merit God's forgiveness by our remorse. When we confess, we are saying the same thing God says about us, about our sin, about himself. This is actually what the word means. In the Greek, it's two different words, homo logeo, something like that. And it means the same, um, the same thing, and logos, like the word. We say the same word. We agree with God. It's the same word. We say, we are saying the same word you say. We say the same word he says about our sin. There is no merit in acknowledgement of sin and guilt. There is nothing we can do, including confession and acknowledging sin, that will merit forgiveness. And yet, the Father makes us to feel our need of Him like a babe at the breast of her mother and applies that grace and mercy and forgiveness. He applies that grace and mercy and forgiveness as we feel our need for him. He meets our needs. Remember, Christ came for the sick, not for those who are well. He says this in Luke chapter 5. He came for sinners, not the righteous. But who's righteous, right? Nobody's righteous. Who's well? Nobody is well. So what is Jesus actually getting at? What is he actually talking about? He's actually talking about our confession. He's talking about our agreement or our disagreement with God. Do we say the same thing God says? When we don't confess and repent, we are clinging to the weight of sin as we run the race. This is what Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 says. Therefore... We also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Sometimes the weights we are holding on to are very obvious, right? Sometimes they're very obvious, and you know they're wrong, and you know it's sin, and you know you need to confess. But for whatever reason, you hold on to that weight. And sometimes we are completely oblivious to the sin that is weighing us down. When we are fearful or anxious, this is a great place to see this. 
we need to agree with what God says about that, right? When we give place to fear and anxiety, we are not victims, we are guilty. When we give place to fear and to anxiety, we're not victims, we're guilty. God says, do not fear. We're guilty, and here's what we're guilty of. We're guilty of believing a lie about our Heavenly Father. I don't know if he's going to take care of me. He says he will, but I don't know if it's right. Did he really say? And our confession should agree with what God says about fear and anxiety and about lying and unbelief. We, we have listened to a culture to tell us anxiety is so, uh, it, it's a plague right now in, in society. Fear and anxiety. And we have to, as Christians, we have to understand how detrimental fear is to our Christian faith, to our Christian walk. Faith and fear, I, I like to think of them as, as the same thing moving in opposite directions. When I am fearful, I'm having faith in something other than God. And so we want to be very clear to understand this. When God says, um, do not fear or do not be anxious, he's not saying, and in order to fulfill this command of mine, you might need a prescription, you might need therapy, you might need to change your spouse or change your job or change your circumstances. No, no. God says, be anxious for nothing and do not fear. And so what we need to start with, start with, is agreeing with God. What else we need to do, let's have that discussion after. But what we need to start with is start with agreeing with God. Start with confessing our sin. When we have lustful desires, here's another great place to see this. When we have lustful desires or inordinate affections, we are not victims of uncontrollable natural urges. We are not victims of uncontrollable natural desires. We are not, listen very carefully, we are not victims of our upbringing or our environment. The upbringing and environment that you had no choice in the matter. You are not a victim. Of those things. When you are lusting and having inordinate affections, God says you you are guilty. We are guilty and we must agree with God. We must agree with God. When we hold hate in our heart or bitterness towards someone, we must agree with what God says about bitterness. What God says about how we are to respond to our enemies, to those who have wronged us, we must agree with God. That's confessing our sin and agreeing with God. And we should confess our sin right away. Do not wait for Sunday to confess your sin. Do not wait for the confession time on Sunday to confess your sin. You should confess sin right away. And when we confess on Sunday, this is some, 
This may seem obvious to some of you, but maybe not to all, not to, maybe not to all of us. When we confess on Sunday, so don't wait for Sunday to confess. And when we confess on Sunday, we should not confess particular sins that we have already confessed. This would demonstrate unbelief in the cleansing work of Jesus. So let me give you an example. Um, if, if I burst out in anger on Friday at 9 a.m. toward my family and I punch a hole in the wall, and by 10 a.m. I have confessed that sin to God. I have confessed my sin to my family. I have received forgiveness from God from my family. I've made restitution. I've patched the hole in the wall. On Sunday, I should not drudge that particular hole in the wall back up, even though that was an egregious sin. I should not drudge that sin back up and reconfess it on Sunday. Okay, what should we do? Well, we don't confess the particular instance of sin over and over, no matter how grievous the sin is. That shows an unbelief. That shows that we're not actually confessing. What we should do is we should recognize that the sins that we find ourselves repeatedly getting tangled up in and constantly confessing, um, we, we should recognize that there is something in us that we do not fully understand. There's something else in us down here that we're not seeing clearly. When we confess our individual sins in the Lord's service, we are, of course, confessing anything that has not already been confessed. You should confess all unconfessed sins in the Lord's Day service. But we are also confessing that there are things that we have unintentionally left unconfessed. God, I know there's more than what's coming to my mind right now, so please, before I get up, forgive me. Bring it to my attention. I want to be better, right? And so when, um, when we keep having sins surface... We should be constantly plucking those things out, confessing them, giving them to God, confessing them, giving them to God, confessing them, giving them to God every single time, every day. And then we need to recognize that there is a root down here. There's a problem below the surface somewhere. Maybe I don't see it yet, right? There's a problem down below. It's the reason why these things keep sprouting up and I keep plucking them and confessing them to God, which is what you should do, right? So when we come to the confession time, and you should do this also in your own prayer time, you say, God, God, search me and know me. Father, I confess that I do not know myself and my sin. I am weak and I keep getting tangled up in this sin. Please search me and know my inward parts. Please reveal to me those things that I cannot see, those things that I am yet holding on to. Those things that keep becoming a snare for me, a trap for me. Truly, I am unclean. Make me holy like you are holy. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. We we even have to confess for our weak repentance. We have to repent for our weak repentance. That can be pietistic, but that's also just a, a reality. You can't even pray and confess rightly. 
this is part of why we confess corporately as well as individually in the service because it shapes us and it trains us to recognize sin against the backdrop of God's holiness. It trains us and shapes us how we are to respond to sin. We confess it. We lay aside the weight. We are being trained to confess sin and lay aside the weight. To lay it aside. Actually lay it aside. Don't hang on to it. We lay it at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who takes our heavenly burdens and gives us a light burden and an easy yoke. The confession is is not the end. The confession is not the end. Laying something down is not the point. It's not the end. The purpose of confession is to put off the old and put on the new. It is to mortify the flesh and to present your members to righteousness. We lay down our sin and we pick up our cross. We lay down our sin and we pick up our cross and we run the race with endurance. We lose our life so we can gain eternal. As we confess our sin and as we put on Christ and take up our cross, we are receiving the assurance of pardon, the assurance of forgiveness, the assurance that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us, Romans chapter 4. God mercifully assures us in the Lord's service that the penalty for your sin has been fully paid by the blood of Jesus. You are assured here of your standing as a child of God. You are assured here that you have been washed in the blood of Jesus, that you have been made acceptable. But don't get tricked by that word, acceptable. The Bible says you have been made a delight to your heavenly Father. He is not tolerating you acceptable. You have been acceptable to be in his presence, and he delights in you. He loves you. He loves to look at your life and say, well done, to himself. Our ongoing confession of our ongoing sins should serve to magnify God's ongoing grace. Where sin abounds, what abounds more? Grace. Grace abounds more. Our confession should reinforce God's good news to us, not sabotage God's good news to us. When you confess your sins, you're not becoming displeasing to God. That is not good news. Our confession should reinforce the glorious truth that you have been accepted by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Lord's service to us as we move through the liturgy cuts us up. It transforms us into something new. It shapes us. It creates in us new desires and habits and knowledge and understanding and wisdom It puts new words in our mouth and it presents us with good works to do. 
Because you are his workmanship. Because you are his good work. Now he gives you good works. It puts new words in our mouth. Like, even down to the very simple, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When that hard word comes to you, you you are trained to say, thanks be to God. When that discipline comes to you, you are trained to say, thanks be to God. We do not confess, when we do not confess sin, we are compounding sin on sin. We are digging the hole deeper. Another temptation when it comes to confession is to be sly, to be ambiguous in order to keep certain sins hidden away and shielded from confession. We, we try and train our children at school when there is conflict. Did you know Christian kids have conflict? Yeah, it's true. When there's conflict at school and one student wrongs another student and they have to go and apologize, um, they don't get to say, I'm sorry. They have to say, what for? That's a good practice for your kids and for yourselves. You don't just get to say, I'm sorry. You have to say, what for? What are you sorry for? Tell the person what you're sorry for. Show them, show them that you understand what you've done is wrong. And you've recognized it in yourself and you're going to try and do better for a whole five minutes. <laughs> we try and be sly to keep certain things hidden away. I'll say sorry, but I'm not really sorry. Anxiety and anger are good examples here again because we are sometimes tempted to confess the attending sins instead of the root sin, the core sin. And so with um, fear or anxiety, for example, we may uh, recognize that our... um, Whining and complaining is sin. And so we say, God, I'm sorry for whining and complaining. That's good. But have you confessed that your anxiety in and of itself is a high-handed assault on the Father's mercy and goodness and providence? (laughs) Have you confessed that your fear is actually telling a lie about your Heavenly Father? Or have you just said, I'm sorry for fretting. I'm sorry for whining and complaining. That's an attending sin. You should confess, but you go deeper than that. Don't be sly. When we are angry and we burst out, do we confess the sinful outburst while justifying our anger and and pretend it's a virtue? Men, we do this. I'm not saying women don't. I'm sure there are plenty of angry women here, but I'm kidding but serious, you know, that weird thing. Um, but men, we do this, um, it's a bad thing. Um, we, we'll burst out in anger, and then we will confess the outburst, and then we will try and uh, disguise the actual sin of anger as a virtue. Well, I just want my kids to obey, or I just want this thing that I've been working on for four hours to just work the way you know, I meant it to work, right? I'm justified in being angry because... The, There's a virtue here. I just want my house to be tidy and in order. I'm talking to myself. Ooh, am I talking to myself? My wife is going to bring this up so much to me. Praise the Lord and my kids. And I tell them that. Please help me. I don't want to be like that. 
But we do this. We confess the attending sins, but we leave the actual sin unconfessed. We're sly. We can also be tempted to not confess for noble-sounding reasons. You may be tempted rightly, um, you may see your sin rightly as grievous, a great sin, but you may be tempted to say, well, it's too big to just confess. And so we try and show remorse, which is, remorse is good, but we try and show remorse by holding on to our sin like a club and beating ourselves over the head with it. The problem there is not confession. The problem is that you're not confessing. The problem there is that you actually don't hate your sin enough to let it go. A glut for punishment. Failing to confess sin is failing to love your neighbor. Sin is never just a personal matter. The consequences of sin are never isolated to the one guilty. This is part of the reason why it is important for Christians to stand up and speak out against sinful behavior that is just private. It's just private. No, it's not just private. Our sin is never private. A a man who murders another man and is given the death penalty has to pay the consequences for his sin, right? But so does the victim's family. they got to pay the consequences for that sin too. You know who else does? The man's wife and children and parents and brothers and sisters. They have to pay consequences for that sin too. Sin is never just private. Confession of sin, especially confession that isn't delayed, helps to protect the people we are called to love And to minimize as much as possible the collateral damage from our sin. The collateral damage from our sin. When we confess quickly and honestly, we are are helping to protect the people we love and the people we are called to love from the collateral damage of sin. Sin invites the discipline of God. Unconfessed sin in his children invites the loving and uncomfortable discipline. We all believe that, right? That's Yes, we all believe that. But here's the thing. There, along with the discipline of God, very often attends suffering and affliction. And I'm going to just say, we don't like to talk about this at all. But God's word is clear. When we abide sin, when we hold on to our sin knowingly or unknowingly, we are living under weight, under pressure. And eventually, inevitably, that weight, that pressure will have very real physical, mental, emotional effects on you and it will seep out to your family, to the people around you. 
And we know from the story of Job, so let me just cut, cut this argument off. We know from the story of Job that when someone is under the discipline of God and is physically afflicted, or, or somebody who experiences, like Job did, um, extreme devastation, there isn't always just one reason, and it is, is not always a matter of personal unconfessed sin. That's what Job's friends thought. They said, Job, just confess your sin. And he says, uh, this isn't that. And God says, hey, you guys are off base. It's not that. And so we know from the story of Job that every time we are physically afflicted or experiencing the suffering in the, that, that is real in this world, it's not because of personal unconfessed sin. But because that's true, you know what we like to do? We like to say, well, then it never is. Then it never is that. But that is denying the scriptures. And we probably do that because, um, for a lot of reasons, but one of the reasons we probably do it, that is because we've seen here in this church, probably um, specifically for us, we've seen the abuses of this kind of um, thing, haven't we? We've seen the abuses, just like Job's friends beating Job up, we've seen the abuses from the false prosperity gospel folks saying, hey, you know what, you just live faithfully before the Lord and give me that money, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And that's not how it works. So we've seen the abuses from the word of faith heresies. And we probably lean back against that for that reason, and we lean probably back too far. Very often in our personal assessments, we are tempted to assume that personal sin is never the cause of of our suffering, of our physical suffering, of our mental and emotional suffering. And so we don't go there. We say, yeah, we agree. We say, yes, it ultimately is sin because we live in a fallen world. But I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about personal sin. We don't, often confess that personal sin may be a factor here that I need to take assessment of. I need to take stock and say, what's going on? And frankly, that should be the first place we look. We must not fool ourselves into thinking that known or unknown sin could never be the cause of our suffering and affliction. Listen to Psalm 32, 3 and 4. We we read this this morning. We read this every week. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. There are physical effects to the hand of God on a person. Psalm 38, 1 and 8, 1 through 8. Listen, this is a longer section. You can follow if you want to in your Bibles or make a note and go back and read the whole chapter later. But listen to this. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your wrath, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure, for your arrows pierce me deeply, and your hand presses me down. Did you know that wasn't just the devil who threw arrows at you? Those are the good ones that always hit their mark. Gods are always the good ones that hit their mark. The enemies are the ones that you need to 
keep out. He, he goes on, he says, there is no soundness in my flesh because of your anger, nor any health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They are too heavy for me. My wounds are foul and festering because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long for my loins are full of inflammation. And there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. Do you hear the physical, mental, emotional suffering there the psalmist is describing? And he didn't even have a therapist to tell him. I'm being funny, but I'm being serious. You know, it's, the reality is, is what we experience today is nothing new. What we experience as human beings, trauma, anxiety, fear, mental distress, emotional distress, these are not new things, new experiences. Adam and Eve experienced some real trauma as soon as they took that bite and realized, we're naked and we've been naked, and what's going on? In our personal assessments, in our pastoral counsel, what is most often the first thing we should do, the first place we should look is for sin, unconfessed sin. Am I agreeing with what God says or am I letting a rebellious therapeutic culture define and redefine and redefine sin for me? Am I agreeing with God? Am I tolerating sin in my thought life because I'm not acting on it? Am I tolerating sin in my thought life? Am I seeking to justify my thoughts and desires, my behavior, by not agreeing with God's word and instead agreeing with the TikToks, the things we see on the internet, the therapist? Am I trivializing my sin in order to sweep little things under the rug? Are there blind spots that I have completely missed? See, this isn't just about a malicious holding on to your sin. This isn't just about you're such a, um, a maliciously evil person because you keep holding on to this unconfessed sin. Maybe you are whole, actively gripping unconfessed sin, but it also could just be a blind spot. It all, also could just be a blind spot. You're missing something. Are my tears pure tears? Do I hate my sin? And so we confess. And especially when we come into this place corporately, we posture ourselves. We don't just posture ourselves mentally, we posture ourselves physically. There's a reason why when somebody starts to get beat up, they curl up in a little bitty ball. Why do you think we do that? Or if you're about to crash on an airplane, they say, okay, you know, get into a little bitty ball. Like, why do we do that? Because there's real, there is something real about physical def- defensive posture. Protect, protect the vitals, right? Well, we do this all the time. We are, we are uncomfortable to open our hands up like this and look up to our Heavenly Father, to raise our hands up 
like that. If I told you to do it right now, which I'm, I, I thought about it, but I'm not going to do it because I don't like when people do that. But if I, if I said, everybody stand up right now, put your hands up and, and open, up your, open up your body, just open up your physical self right now and just put your head up and put your hands out like that. For some of you, that would be physically uncomfortable, wouldn't it? Yeah, I know. Believe me, I know. Or if I said, lay down flat on your face on the floor. Or if I said, take your shoes off, somebody's going to wash your feet. There is something about a physical posture that is defensive, right? This is one of the reasons why we take a humiliated posture when we pray, when we confess our sin. Because it's important that we physically surrender those defenses. That we emotionally, mentally surrender those defenses. Maybe it's not supposed to be, you know, the most comfortable thing we do. Right? We plead with God to search us and to know us. And it's like we've unlocked all the doors and we say, here it is, free reign. We bow down in the dust and what does God do? He raises us up. We bow down our bodies low and God raises us up. We bend low, our will low, and God raises us up. Our humbled posture and our corporate confession is helpful, especially when you aren't feeling super good sinful and guilty. Yeah, we have those people too, don't we? Sometimes we come on Sunday mornings and we've had a great week and we're not feeling especially sinful or guilty. And we confess not just because of what we feel. We confess what is true. We agree with God's word. And so our Part of our confession is a confession, corporately in particular, is a confession that, is, that we recognize the brokenness and the chaos in the, in the world we live in. The brokenness and the chaos that characterizes the creation that is plagued by sin and death. Our confession is a humble recognition that worship changes the world because it changes us. We worship God not only for our own personal benefit. Did you know that? This is what Pastor was talking about last week. How we've said for a long time, like, come to, come, don't come to get, come to give. And, but we have to understand it's not either or, right? We, we worship for our personal benefit because God is actually serving you personally. He's assuring you of your pardon personally. And that's a beautiful service. But we don't, just rec- we don't just worship for our own sakes. Worship changes the world. And so we, in our worship, we look forward to all of creation being set right. The benefit that attends our worship is to the whole world, not just to your personal life. The whole creation is being set right. Our worship here is a window for unbelieving world to gaze into a glorious eternity. And, into, uh, and, and it is, our worship is a faint, ever so faint touch and taste for the unbelieving world to see and to taste and to feel what is true and good and beautiful. 
And when the world sees the church confess her sins and receive assurance of pardon, that is a proclamation of the good news that Christ came to save sinners. And we're sinners. How many times have you been met with, when you, sh- when you um, talk to somebody about salvation, when you talk to somebody about being a Christian, how many times have you been met with, you're just judging me, you think I'm just a, a, a sinner, you don't, you're telling me you don't sin? We, in our confession and our assurance of pardon, we get to proclaim to the world, we are sinners. We receive God's forgiveness and cleansing, just like he wants you to. Broken individuals and families and cultures and nations are transformed as we confess, humbled and contrite, as our Father lifts up our head and clothes us in robes of righteousness. He brings beauty from ashes and joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. He brings glory where there was only shame. We worship to glorify God, and this worship changes the world. And that means our worship is not only for us. Our confession is not only for us. Our assurance of pardon is not only for us. It is for us and for all of creation. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. We are invited to the Lord's table because we have been cleansed by the Lord whose body we eat and whose blood we drink. Before the sacrifice of Christ, those animal sacrifices representing the worshiper would be offered up as a kind of food. They're called God's food, and that that altar was called God's table. That animal was cut up and put on that altar. It was turned to smoke as a kind of food for him. And at the tabernacle, that smoke would go up. And you know what it would do? It would get intermingled in that cloud that was above that tabernacle, that cloud of, of that presence of God in cloud and fire. And now Christ comes to us, the perfect sacrifice. Christ comes to us, the perfect sacrifice. And one of the ways he comes to us is as our food. So come and welcome to Jesus. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Please stand and receive your charge. Your charge this morning comes from James chapter 5, verse 10. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. When Peter was being called to be Christ's disciple, the first words he heard were, follow me. Jesus said, follow me. And the last words Jesus said to Peter, recorded for us in John 21, he said, follow me. And between those two follow me's is a whole lot. Peter denied Jesus three times, right? At the crux of the the moment, he denies Jesus three times and he goes and he weeps bitterly. But that's not the end. 
Jesus says, follow me. Repentance, confession, receiving forgiveness, assurance of pardon, all of that, um, all of that we could sum up and put into one word and we can say, we could call it discipleship. Discipleship. Are you a disciple of Jesus? All of that is included there. Follow him. Do you want to be holy? Do you want to be healed and whole? Do you, do you want to keep hanging on to the weight that is weighing you down? No, of course not. So why would you want to keep your sins to yourself? We all know you're a sinner. It's not going to shock anybody, surprise anybody. Oh, they sin? Confess. Confess to your spouse. Confess to your elders. Confess to your brothers and your sisters. And be healed. That's the charge today. Our confession isn't just about the sins and the weights we are laying down. It's about the cross we are taking up. The cross that Jesus says is an easy burden a light yoke. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, he calls this costly grace, and he says it's costly grace because it is a cross to bear. But it's grace because it is a light and easy yoke. Remind yourself, I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Worship in spirit and in truth and worshiping in that way is, in, is worshiping in an atmosphere created by the Holy Spirit, and you are his house. So tend to his house, and let us confess our sins quickly and honestly, and be assured each day and each week that we are forgiven in Christ, and yet called again and again and again to follow him. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.